don't like the word happy or content. I like the word more fully alive, really present here, living it to the maximum of my potential and my capacity. And the fear of living fully is that something in you knows something has to change here. I have to make some change that might feel like a loss in the beginning. Big risk here might not, but it might lead to my freedom. Whether it's leaving a job, changing the rules of a marriage, or leaving a marriage, or getting married, or all the decisions that are huge and that we're afraid to make. It's like, I don't want to go there. Too scary, too risky. I'll just stay here living half a life. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What in your life is trying to break open right now? You know, one of the most kind of sacred parts of my work as a consultant, as a coach, is that I get to see behind the scenes in what it actually takes to build a life of influence. The successes, the moments of inspiration when it's all in flow and nothing can hold you back from making an impact, to the painful moments, the moments of failure, of exhaustion, of reinvention. You know, those moments where the life that you wanted or what you thought you had built, the identity that you'd worked so hard to create, suddenly begins to burn away. And you're left staring at the ashes, wondering what on earth happened and what on earth is going to happen next. You know, the truth is that anyone that decides to put their ideas out there into the world, to make a difference, to drive a change, to step out from the sidelines and into the arena to be seen, will, in the eternal words of Brene Brown, eventually get their ass kicked. That's part of it. That's part of the deal. You know, one of my favorite quotes is one from Paolo Coelho, which is another eventual tattoo that I'm going to get. And it says, A fall from the third floor hurts as much as a fall from the hundredth. If I fall, may it be from a high place. And yet, we very, very rarely talk about those moments those moments of a hundredth floor full ass-kicking. Or as my guest on today's episode would call it, those moments of breaking open. You know, every so often with this podcast, I get the absolute pleasure of speaking to someone that's had a huge influence on my own life. And so it is with today's guest. Elizabeth Lesser is the author of several best-selling books, including her New York Times bestseller, Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, which has sold almost half a million copies and has been translated into over 20 languages. 
She is the co-founder of the Amiga Institute, recognized internationally for its workshops and conferences on wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change. She is also the creator of two incredible TED Talks on civility, understanding, and the power of truth-telling, as well as being one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talents to elevate humanity. Elizabeth is also the person whose work I have turned to frequently during times in my life where I wasn't really sure where else to turn. When I didn't want to be inspired or motivated or told to dig in and dial up the hustle, but just wanted to know that it was enough. It was enough to show up, even if I didn't know what was going to happen next. Enough to take the next breath, enough to trust that the most transformational moments in all of our lives always happen when we step into the gap. The gap between what's burning away and what's trying to emerge. Which is why I was so thrilled to have her on the show, finally. Now, this is a wide-ranging conversation, including diving into moments in my life that, to be honest, I, I never really imagined that I would discuss on the podcast. But such is the beauty and the humanity of Elizabeth. In this episode, we discuss the difference between breaking down and breaking open and why staying awake as we fall holds the key. The Phoenix process, how to stand in the fire of what's trying to burn away while trusting that you will rise again and you will rise stronger. How to find the courage to turn and face what wants to change within you, then take radical responsibility for what comes next. The power of sitting in the gap, as I said, the space in between what was and what is yet to be, and why it feels so uncomfortable, especially in our hyper-driven world. And finally, why we are all just bozos on the bus of life, making it up as we go along and thinking that we're the only ones. You know, what touched me most in this conversation was Elizabeth's perspectives on how we hold space for the Phoenix processes of our lives and how hard it is to do that. And, you know, I know for me, every time I emerge from a fire of my own, be it of my own making or be it, as we have seen over the past few years, a fire that none of us saw coming, I immediately forget how powerful and painful those times can be. But it's in those moments of my life where I've learned to reset the rules, where I've reprioritized what works for me now versus what used to work for me then where new ideas have taken hold and new visions, such as this podcast, have been born. And yet, and yet, every single time I smell the smoke, I still resist. I fight and I run, I exhaust myself and I fall in a heap and then eventually I do the only thing that can be done, which is surrender. And then after the ashes settle, something more powerful always, always begins to emerge. So if you have a phoenix process happening in your own life right now, either quietly in the background or so loudly you can't ignore it, I genuinely hope that this conversation lends you the courage that it takes to step into the flame. On that note, I'm going to stop talking now and leave you with a woman whose books and wisdom I have shared more than any other over the last 24 months the incredible Elizabeth Lesser. 
Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth Lesser. I'm so honored and thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am equally honored and thrilled to be here. And we were just we were just touching very briefly before we before I pressed record before we came on air um, about the intersection between your world and mine, and I, I hadn't really ever thought of it that way before. That both of us have spent our careers. You used a beautiful word, curating. Yeah. How does that like? How has that looked for you in in your life? Like, what kind of curation has gone on for you? Well, um, forty three years ago. It's hard for me to believe that. Um, I was just a kid in my early 20s, and we had this idea to start a workshop and retreat center. This was at a time in America when things that are now taken for granted, you know, there's a yoga studio on every corner and everybody eats organic natural foods and meditation is taught in hospitals and the military. But back then, it was just very far out and weird, weird stuff that just a bunch of young hippies were into. But we had this idea that um, maybe we could offer it in such a way that we could give a little more dignity to it and clout so that other people than just the, the small group of people who are interested. And we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know anything about um, inviting teachers or even who those teachers might be or how to market anything or we we just had an idea and it took off very fast and i always think of omega institute which is the institute we founded i always think of it as like this monster we created and we've been running after it ever since because it grew very fast very quick suddenly we owned a campus and we had you know 50,000 people coming through and and so that is the curation I have done most of my adult life, which is, you know, thinking what's up in the culture now? What are people's hunger? What are people's pain? What are people's joys and concerns and desires? Who are the best authors, teachers, thinkers, retreat leaders, artists, singers, whatever, who can feed people's souls? even though they may not know they're looking for soul food, you know, and that's, that's what I have done. And all of my books have come out of those experiences and learnings. It's been a great ride. What do you look for? I always find that fascinating because for me with this podcast and with my work, it's always been the through line there. Like there's a through line with people who are on the edges experiencing realms of influence that we rarely get to see. Like it might be an FBI hostage negotiator who has to negotiate for the lives of children. I mean, if you're going to learn about negotiation and what works, you're going to learn it there. It's, I spoke to Benjamin Zander, who's the um, head conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, who's incredible and what it takes to pull um, a troop of competitors together and make beautiful music. What do you look for when you're looking at these ideas? How do you, does it, does it feel something? Is it something that feels different to you when you come across something and you think, yeah? It's such a good question. And it's a, it's kind of a complex one because um, although I've been deeply steeped in all of this healing and inner growth and health and 
I'm not like, I have a very strong bullshit detector. Like you develop that after a while. <laughs> yeah, I don't get, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for authenticity, kindness, realness. And I've made lots of mistakes. You know, it's like, because when you're interested in the edge, you're going to get some pretty out there people. And sometimes it's like, oh my God, what a, what an amazing out there person, an out there person with a heart and an intention to really raise consciousness so that we could not act the way our world is acting these days. I'm looking for people whose intention isn't just the glorification of their own ego or pocketbook. I'm, I'm, and I've made mistakes and we, we, you know, it's not just me at Omega, it's a whole team. And different people are interested in different things. You know, like there are medical doctors who are working with past life memories in people. And I'm just like, eh, I'm not really that interested in that, but I respect it. So I'll turn that over to somebody else, you know, but um, so I keep a very broad a broad range to satisfy different people's interests. And I think the bottom line is what is the intention of this person? Talking about talking about intention and attention, you used this gorgeous quote um, in your latest book, Cassandra Speaks. I think it's by your I'm gonna try and get this pronunciation right. Jose Ortega Yigase. Yeah. Did I get that right? I think so. I don't speak Spanish, but it sounded sounded right to me. Um, A Spanish philosopher who said, tell me what you pay, tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. So what are you, what are you paying attention to right now? Well, I put that quote in Cassandra Speaks, which is a book about the missing stories and values of women over all of humans' history, going back into our earliest texts. And um, I put that quote in the book because um, I kind of feel I have to go back and fill in a little of that story. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. So I, I was in New York City. I live near New York City. And I was taking a walk in Central Park one day. and. I came across statues on my walk in Central Park. You know, most parks all over the world have statues. And it was a beautiful spring day and I wasn't in a rush. And for the first time after having walked in this park my whole life, I looked at the statue and it was, oh my goodness, this is like six young soldiers in World War I, bloody, dying, and it was an honoring of, of, a, of a New York troop in World War I. I kept walking on, and there was another soldier statue. And then there was General Grant, the Civil War general, sitting on a golden horse. And the longer I walked and noticed, every single statue in that park was honoring war and warriors. And I thought to myself, since the book is about women and women's stories, where are the statues of women and the things we have cared about throughout history? Like there are some bloody soldiers. Why isn't there a woman giving birth? 
Like, why would we think, oh, that'd be weird and kind of gross and gory? But our culture has paid attention to war and warriors forever. That's what we call heroic. That's what we've paid attention to. It doesn't mean we should never pay attention to it. But what if we had paid attention throughout history equally to the heroes who teach our children, who take care of our elders, who heal? What if there were as many statues around the world of healers and kindergarten teachers as there were of soldiers and other first responders? That's why I got into that quote. And the more I have lived with it, tell me to what you pay attention, and I will tell you who you are. Who we are, and we can see it right now in the tragedy in the world right now. We, we are cultures that honor the warrior. If we paid more attention to the heroics of the peacemakers, we'd be a different culture. So personally, when I take that on for myself, what am I paying attention to today? Only the horrors of the world? Well, that brings me, that drags me down into despair. So how can I stay attuned to the world, awake to the problems, but also pay attention to the beauty and the people doing amazing things and the path in front of me to do my own amazing things? And I, I try to live by that quote, to pay attention not only to the loudest voices and the most dramatic voices, because so much in the news is just what sells the news. So um, it's a good thing to ask yourself, what, what are you paying attention to? Because that's who you're going to be today. You've got me just thinking about the word warrior there, which is strangely a word I think about a lot. I don't know if it's having a young daughter and a, and a young son because that word warrior, there's a lot of space within that word for the masculine. You know, there's, there's, when we think about warrior, there's a lot of space there for that. And I found myself asking a lot, and especially when I started on my journey as a leader very young, and stepped into a leadership and leading people who were sometimes twice, sometimes three times my age. And I was trying to find, spent a lot of time trying to find my way in that. A lot of time trying to figure out, okay, so if I go the route of, you know, quieter and does that work? No, not so much. Okay, what if I go the route of just kind of like I will meet kind of not aggression, but I will meet power with power and I'll just kind of out masculine and that didn't work so well either. And that question of what does a warrior look like for me? What does it take to show up fearlessly, but with space in that for peace, for healing, for listening, for the holding, for the transformation? Can you have both? And that's a genuine question. And it's one I still ponder today. Can you, is there space in the word warrior for me, for us, for everybody? On this planet that's my that's that's the question that i uh have pondered the most my whole life too and i and in my most recent book and i know you also wanted to speak about my other books and that's fine but um i teach a a meditation in this recent book 
based on that question, because it is the question for women in leadership now. Can we do power differently? Can we be powerful? Can we be the warrior, but can we do it differently? And so I came up with this meditation that based on a um, a needle point that I found in my sister's office after she died. She was a nurse and it said, do no harm, but take no shit. And as a nurse, you take the oath, the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. That's the medical oath. That's the number one oath doctors take. I shall do no harm to my patients. And she had after it, but take no shit because nurses take a lot of shit. Quite so, literally, literally and figuratively. Correct. And so I've always loved um, the Buddhist statues you see around now. Everybody has them in their garden where one hand is up in the stop motion and the other is this cup. So if you're not viewing this and you're just listening to us, it's it's one hand is held up strongly like stop and the other is a cup as if you're like catching the rain and i've always i've always loved this these mudras these gestures held together because they're only shown together in buddhist iconography this idea of strength and openness softness and strength they also often talk about strong back in meditation and soft front, open heart, strong back. And this is all physical ways of asking that question that you ponder all the time, which is, can I be strong and fierce? And can I have a soft and open forgiving heart? Can they live together and feed each other and tell us when it's appropriate to be fierce and when it's appropriate to back away and to listen and so I, I came up with this meditation because there's something about demystifying the whole Buddhist yogi thing with like words that us English speakers get. So do no harm. That's that cupped hand. But take no shit. How do they live together when I go into a meeting and I'm scared and I want to be defensive and on the attack? How do I also listen? and bear witness to other people's concerns and pain. But don't get run over. Don't get taken advantage of. How do I do that? And sometimes if I'm going into a meeting and I'm flummoxed like that, I will take my hands. Sometimes I'll put them under the desk so people don't think I'm totally weird. Um, just to remind my body, I can be strong. I can be open because if I'm too strong, I'm an asshole. I don't want to do that. The world is such a mess. I don't want to perpetuate the warrior code of never backing down, never listening, manipulating, dominating. I don't want to do that. But if I'm too sensitive and too soft, I'll get run over because it's harsh. It's a harsh world. So it's both. It's strong back. It's soft front. It's do no harm, it's take no shit, it's knowing when, but mostly it's praying to balance them. A mentor of mine, when I was having a similar conversation, she, she looked to me and she said, you know, you can, 
you can have both. You can, you can hold two opposing views, two opposing words in, and similar in one in each hand. You can hold both. One does not cancel out the other. One actually, if you can hold them, one strengthens the other. To me, that's, that's you know, if you want to play around with the word enlightenment, that's enlightenment to me. It's nothing fancy. It's um, being that that person who is totally sensitive to others and the whole world, so sensitive that your heart's almost broken all the time, but you let that happen. You, you, you live with that. And the other side of that is you're totally open to joy and love and freedom, but your heart is just ex exquisitely attuned to everything. But you're also not not a pushover, because that doesn't help anyone. And that's that's our path. It's not like, and I got there last week, and I'm just fine now. It's a path. We're always falling off in one direction or the other, but the path is clear. It's it's the balance of those two forces, strength and softness. I want to I want to talk about falling off the path because you know when I first reached out to you about this interview I sat there going to write the email to you to say would you like to come on the podcast and the truest thing that I could think of to say was that you know your book Broken Open has been one of the most cherished resources I have had during times when I've fallen off the path and I've gone back to it a number of times in my life and I have gifted it. And I actually had a copy on my desk when I wrote to you, ready to send to another friend. I have gifted it so many times. And so I just want to talk about the there's the path and then there's when we fall off the path. And sometimes we fall off a little bit, sometimes we stumble, and sometimes we fall and we just keep falling. And we keep falling and we keep falling and we're not quite sure when we're going to stop. Um you, one of the first lines in that book, and I'm going to be using a lot of quotes from the book just because when I sat down to put these questions together, I, I've got all the quotes written down. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to bring the quotes with me. That's a good idea. Um, you said the, the time came when the risk to remain tight in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. What, was there a moment in your life that compelled you to write Broken Open? So the big moment in my life that compelled me to write it was getting divorced, being a young mom and getting divorced. And when I set out to write it, um, I didn't want to write my own story. I just didn't want to because there's a, a lot of shame in the times we fall and fall and fall, as you said. So I, I wanted to, like, use old myths, you know, the myths of, of the Joseph Campbell myth of of going on the journey and uh having to fall off only to find your way back and oh you know i wanted to write about friends i knew i wanted to write about famous people who had fallen off didn't want to tell my story and very soon into writing the book uh i started writing about the most important step on the journey is to know that we're all falling all of us, there's no one spared of the falling and the rising and the falling. And then I thought, so you're not going to write about yourself? You're going to hide out? 
you're 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 you just broke your first rule. <laughs> so I decided I would make it part memoir and part you know, the greats who have gone before us and, and charted the journey for us. But the more I wrote, the more I ended up telling the whole story. And for me, my great broken open moment, I had such a a dream of never being a divorced person, of always having an intact family, of never doing something to my beloved little children who were quite young at the time, three and five, of 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 making, you know, as parents, we just want to protect our children from every hurt. So here I was about to hurt them in the worst way. On the other hand, I was in a very, very difficult, unhappy, and not well relationship that was harming me. So that decision to do something that would break my life and my children's life and my ex-husband's life, yet would open me to the possibility of walking in this world as a happy person, as a whole person, as a generous person. Uh, I made that choice. I made the choice to break open. And and the other side of that pain was so glorious and such so much more than I ever could have expected. You know, to take my life in my own hands and to make a choice for my own wellness. I just wanted to share with people both the pitfalls and the journey and the gifts from it. And so that was what motivated me to write the book. I want to talk a little bit about the breaking and then we can, you know, move into the the rising, the rising game. But I think it's really important to focus on the breaking. I know that it was for me because that was my inability. If I look at my own moments in time when I've fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen, it's my, it was my inability to recognize the breaking and take healthy steps that kept me falling or at least kept me falling in a way that was more suffering than was necessary. So let's just talk about the difference here between breaking open and breaking down because there's a significant difference, I know. Yes. Um, well, I think we all know what it feels like to break down um, when the world begins to feel dark, uninviting, unnourishing, you know, when it you just look like is this really all there is? I got one life and I'm going to live it like this? And for me, for many years, my answer was, yes, I am going to live it like this. You know, like it's a fantasy that you can be fully alive. I don't like the word happy or content. I like the word more fully alive, really present here, living it to the maximum of my potential and my capacity. So um, I just told myself, that doesn't really happen. That's just a story. You know, a lot of us come from families growing up where you didn't see examples of full-on living, expressive loving, uh, parents who like 
cherished your your skills and helped you step into who you are. You know, I didn't grow up in that kind of family. So I just thought, well, you know, uh, half a life, that's normal. That's what people do. And um, for me, breaking down was selling out to that full life. For other people, breaking down means clinical depression. It means being unhealthy, means not being in your body, not being well, not, you know, eating too much instead of living fully, working too hard, doing too much alcohol and drugs, all the things we do to numb the pain of not living fully. And, and the fear of living fully is that something in you knows something has to change here. I have to make some change that might feel like a loss in the beginning, that might lead, big risk here, might not, but it might lead to my freedom. Whether it's leaving a job, changing the rules of a marriage, or leaving a marriage, or getting married, or, or all the decisions that are huge and that we're afraid to make. It's like, I don't want to go there too scary, too risky. I'll just stay here living half a life. And sometimes those moments, you know, they're, they're cataclysmic. It's, it's the death of a loved one. It's an illness. It's a pandemic and a war. And sometimes those, those moments, I, I was thinking of it more, you can smell the smoke early. There are moments where you just have that feeling, right? Just that yes. nagging. And I've spoken to so many kind of business owners, people who are living an incredible life, you would, you would look at them and think it had always been that way. And when you, when you talk to them, they can usually all, and I actually considered starting a podcast called The Moment because you can usually all talk about a moment, a moment in time where I realized I either wasn't where I was supposed to be, I wasn't doing what I, I wasn't fully present, I wasn't fully living, but and this is how most people's stories go after this, but I carried on because that's what you do. And I ended up getting sick, um, breaking everything around me, sabotaging the very things that I had built. Um, and I realized looking back at those, because one for me was I, I burnt out in my, in my thirties. And I can remember very clearly the moment when I smelt the smoke for the first time and very clearly where I was and the decision to keep running, to keep moving. And part of that for me was the keeping running was, do you know what I'm going to do? I can smell some smoke here, but I'm going to, I'm going to run out, run around and put out every fire that I can find. I'm just going to hunt the smoke down and put out a thousand fires just to see if I can control this, see if I can get this back under control. And in not allowing the fire to arrive fully and in not having the courage to step into it and in not feeling like I could let burn what needed to be burnt away. I just exhausted myself in a heap, running around, putting out tiny little fires. What's been, what's been your experience of those, of those moments, those moments where we smell the smoke and how we tend to respond? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you use the imagery of fire and smoke because in Broken Open, I call the process the Phoenix process which the phoenix bird in all sorts of mythologies 
is the bird. And the one, the story we know the most is, is an Egyptian myth where, but it's in native cultures. It's, it's a common theme where this great bird senses that um, a change must be made, that he must make a change. And so he builds a pyre of herbs and frankincense and myrrh and uh, sticks and a huge pile and sets himself on fire and burns his in, burns to the ground. He is nothing. But then because he's a magical bird, he rises from the ashes. The phoenix bird rises from the ashes, a brand new bird himself, but new. And we are magical creatures too. We truly are. When I'm in touch with my magic, meaning the fact that I can recreate myself whenever I want, um, then I, I feel this phoenix energy rising in me that I don't have to be stuck. Now, it, as you said, it doesn't have to be a huge drama. You don't have to be like, oh, I guess she's saying I should leave my marriage and my job right now. Goodbye, everybody. Um, sometimes it's recommitting with more energy. What it is, is smelling the smoke, as you say. Allowing yourself to feel what's really going on. When you reach for that third glass of wine, when you say, I'm going to go for a run, when you're stopping for a little while, what, what am I doing here? What am I not wanting to feel? This is all meditation really is. I'll let you in on a little secret. It's not some sort of fancy spiritual hoo-ha. It's sitting still and breathing and asking yourself, what's going on here? Who am I? Who am I really? And the answer to that question is I am a blessed, magical child of the universe with this incredible opportunity to be alive. Am I, am I just existing or am I living? And then, yeah. I was, I was just going to touch there on, on the word you used, magical. And it's not a story I've, I've, I've ever told before, but when, when the crash did eventually come for me and I ignored the smoke and rather than letting the fire burn and seeing what would emerge afterwards, I put out all the tiny ones and then fell in a heap. And I remember the day that it happened when I literally collapsed. And the first thing that I did was I went to, there's a, a beautiful woman who lives in my community who's been a mentor on and off for me for a while. And she has a mosaic studio. It's beautiful. And she teaches meditation through mosaic and her work is just divine. And I don't know why I did this, but I got in my car. I hadn't seen her for months. I got in my car. I drove to her studio. She had students there at the time. I walked in. She took one look at me and said to everybody, can you just give me five minutes? She took me into a side room and she looked at me and she said, what, what is, what has happened? And all I could, the only words I could find was to say, my and I was I, you can't see me anyone that's listening but I was doing this with my fingers I was touching my fingers together and I was like my magic it's gone mm. it's gone that was the only words I could think of to describe what had just happened that I had lost connection with any of the magic that I had had yeah 
you know, it's such a dangerous thing to talk about the magic because I would hate people to think, oh, they have magic. My life's just kind of drab. I'm not talking about uh, daily amazement every second, oh my God, or gifts falling from the sky. I'm just, and some days I don't feel like magic at all, at all. But my, my firm belief and knowing and experience is that magic exists, meaning a sense of, of gratitude for being alive, a sense of purpose in what I'm doing. Um, it's there for the taking. It's ours. It's our birthright. And if it's my intention, to go back to that word, to um, not sell my soul to the routine that we all get stuck in, whether it's, you know, I'm, I, I've been in my second marriage now for 30 years. So I can tell when our magic is missing. And I know damn well that the answer isn't, I better go get another magical creature because he's just, he's, he's broken. He's, <laughs> it's like, what? What am I doing not to see this person's soul? What little game am I running here? It's, it's my own work to uncover the natural magic in everyday life. So it's not always about moving on, giving up, losing. Sometimes it is. And I think to each of us in our life, we will cross the thresholds, like big dramatic thresholds where it's like, you know, some people, they will say to me, until I got cancer, I didn't know how beautiful life was. Until my husband left me, I didn't realize what I had had. You know, these moments where we lose big, we lose big in order to find ourselves, And in the ashes of those big time losses, if we're lucky, if we're dogged in consecrating the loss to something holy, um, we, will, we will taste a magic we never knew was possible. And then we can always go back to that well when like we're losing touch with it, but it's not about the big dramatic things anymore. It's more about taking responsibility to, to live a magical life. You know, I don't usually use the word magic. I don't know how this happened. You I've brought it up. And I've, as I said, I've never told that story before. I don't think there's many of my friends who even know that story. Um, but just to speak to it for a second, you know, that sense of magic for me, if I were to try and describe it, it it's a sense of connection. It's a sense of connection to myself. I'm not disassociated. I'm not distant. It's a sense of connection to myself and it's a sense of connection to something bigger. And I'm, I'm not talking in a religious sense here. I'm just talking about when you can feel life force you know when yes. I can feel the pulse of life I can feel the pulse of that idea and it's exciting I can feel the pulse of where I'm going I can feel my own pulse you know that is the magic for me that's all I'm talking about yep and you know for some people um you know I always divide this journey toward the magic let's call it into different landscapes there's the landscape of the body and the landscape of the mind in the landscape of the heart, 
in the landscape of the soul. And for some people, that magic is covered by a body that's either ill or uh, drugged by too much food or actual drugs or never been really touched, never had the kind of sexual awakening that brings the life force back. And so the work, the spiritual work for many people is in the body. How do I get healthy so that I can feel that? And for some people, the mind is so overwrought, thinking, 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 worrying, 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 anxious, 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 so much so that that's all that's going on. It's like cut off from the rest of the body, just a head walking around worried. And that for that person, work often is meditation, um, therapy, ways of calming, relaxing, just relaxing. And for some people, the heart, the wounded heart, the sh closed heart, the shut down heart, for me, work in the heart to awaken my emotional language and intelligence and way of perceiving the world. I had to work really hard there through therapy just to allow myself to trust my feelings and to value my feelings. And then there's the soul, which is this mysterious realm of, of trying to experience something beyond this small creature bound in a body. Um, and I love soul work, which is spiritual work and mystical work. And at different times in our life, we work in all different of those landscapes, body, mind, heart, soul, because we all have work to do in all of them. You just took me beautifully onto another quote that I have here, which um, I'm not sure if this is your quote or, or one that you've mentioned in the book. I just wrote it down at the time. Uh, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. And that's roomy. That's, that's really, yeah. And, you know, it struck me of all the ways we, we go back to sleep. We put ourselves to sleep. And you, met, you touched on some of them there. I know for me, ironically, my way of going back to sleep is just to caffeinate myself to the point where I can't even feel my body anymore and my brain can operate at the speed that I wish it to be at. And for me, caffeinating is a form of going back to sleep. It's a form of numbing because I can't, feel into whatever might be going on if my brain if I can make my brain really loud and exciting and fast and what other ways do we put ourselves to sleep do we edge away from the fire well there's a way now that didn't even really exist at least not as voraciously when I wrote broken open which are our, our devices oh, of course and if connection is a word for you of that connection equals life force. These things, I mean, they, there's a wonderfulness in what the wired world has brought us. Look, look at you and me now. I'm in New York, you're in Australia, where we see each other, we're talking, this is, this is magic. And it's a magic I, I love and am grateful for 
and admire. But my uh, going back to sleep these days often takes the form of looking at my phone and disconnecting from like, why in the world wouldn't I want to just show up right now with the person in front of me? Why do I have to constantly look at the news? Did I get an email? Do I have a text? Who's on Facebook, Instagram? It is a way of going back to sleep. And it's really something we all have succumbed to. I don't know if you have. I certainly have. And oh, so absolutely. It's, a, it's a current drug. It's a, you know, coffee is a drug of choice for me. You know, even when you just said the word coffee, I was like, coffee. <laughs> I have one sat right next to me. <laughs> um, and over, we know one cup of coffee in the morning is fabulous. Over-caffeinating is not a good idea, but we want more of that feeling. And that's the same thing with the phone. And um, it's the same thing with alcohol and food and all the ways we numb to being in the moment, appreciating the moment, feeling the moment, asking it, what can I learn right now about my full aliveness or my lack thereof? And you know, we don't have to do it all the time. Sometimes it's just totally great to have that second cup of coffee as you look at your phone <laughs> and eat a second croissant. You know, it's like, it, 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 this, this isn't a, a big should, but if you want to escape the wheel of disconnection, fear, anxiety, sadness, you got to look at the things you're doing to numb out. And, and make some kind of commitment to having some times during the day where you ask yourself, how am I doing? What's really going on? And um, what might I do to make some change? And the answer might be a huge surprise and take a lot of risk. And this answer might be very little. But it's creating, I'm just thinking while you're talking, it's creating that gap, right? And sometimes that gap can be five minutes. I know in my life, sometimes the gap has been months when I've intentionally decided to create a gap, usually a little too late. Usually it would have been wiser to do it six months before I have done it. Might not have needed a few months, might have just needed a couple of weeks if I have done that. But it's intentionally creating this gap in between. And I often talk about it as in, you know, you have one chapter and let's just say that that chapter is coming to a close for whatever reason, because you wanted to, you don't want it to. To make a gap between that chapter and this chapter means that you hopefully will step back far enough so that you don't just start writing the last chapter again, because it's all you know how to write. But that gap is so uncomfortable. Like So uncomfortable. So, I mean, that is the... I hate the gap. <laughs> yeah, that's the stepping into the fire, right? Like the, that, that's the, okay. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna stand here and let everything that I, not everything, but things that I love and care about and have built and invested in, and my identity is invested. I'm just gonna let it burn away, and I'm gonna breathe long enough to see if I have the courage and the patience to see what emerges. How, like, any any recommendations or wisdom on standing in the gap 
how we have the courage to stand in the gap? Well, there are wonderful spiritual practices like meditation, like walking meditation. I mean, all meditation is, is sitting in the gap. That's all it is because let's say you decide to meditate for 10 minutes. And by meditating, I mean sitting still, having your all your devices somewhere else, your children, your husband, your wife, your mate, your none of the above, just somewhere else. And you're going to take those 10 minutes and just be and breathe and try to calm the monkey mind, as they call it, the thoughts that are jumping here and there. So you start, you take your seat, you have a nice strong back and a soft front, you do all the right things. And of course, immediately what happens is, oh, I wonder what's going on or one, what should I make for dinner tonight? I'm so so glad that's not me. Or Or the voice that goes off in my head that says, oh, I'm so glad you're here because there's a thousand things we've been meaning to think about. That's right. That's right. So let's make some lists and, and, or you're worrying or you're remembering something you have to do and you forgot. And then you come back to, wait a second, 10 minutes, not thinking about any of that. Nothing's, no one's going to die and nothing's going to fall apart. 10 minutes just to feel my body, relax my mind, open my heart, experience my eternal being. Okay. Okay. I'm back. I'm doing it now. And you start breathing again and you're there and it begins to feel really uncomfortable. Like now what? Wait a second. I need something to think about. I need something to put in my mouth. I need. And then you go back into the gap. Now, why in the world would anyone do this? You ask, because if you keep doing it, It teaches you how to live in the gap for real life. The point of meditating is not to become a great sitter in the gap. It's to develop the muscle to watch the mind do its tricks, to stop identifying with the mind, and to come into some sort of peace and to let yourself feel and breathe. And it's amazing practice so that when you go out into the world, and you feel yourself burning out and you say, I got to make a change. I'm going to leave my job. And it's super uncomfortable and you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You have developed some muscles to allow you to stay with it and to trust it and to ask it and to pray to it, to the gap. You pray to the gap. Help me keep this open so I can get the messages that will show me the next chapter. And that's, that's what meditation is for. I love the flip there, the flip of, of going from fearing the gap because I think, and there's, this, again, a beautiful quote here that you, that you make in Broken Open, which is the Jungian author Robert Johnson when he says, um, you know, when someone asks what happens, what happens in the gap, and he says, you know, nothing happens, which is enough to frighten any modern person. <laughs> You know, when we we go from moving from living in fear of the gap to praying to whatever praying looks like to you, listening to, praying to, paying attention to, that flip alone feels really pivotal to actually just sinking all of our attention into the gap, but without expectation, right? Like 
without that kind of, all right, I, I sat here for 10 minutes and nothing is any clearer. So, you know, this obviously doesn't work and it's not going to become any clearer. Just removing our expectation from the gap. Well, you know, I used to watch my sons practicing basketball and they would just go out to the hoop and just dribble over and over and over. And anyone who practices anything, piano, a sport, um, in the beginning, those drills and those scales, they, they're nothing. They're, you're, you're just so bad at it. And you're not doing it to become a great dribbler or a great scale player. You're doing it so eventually you will be an artist or you will be an athlete. It's the same thing with spiritual practice. You're sitting there practicing something. And you do indeed, if you stick with it long enough, and read about it and go on meditation retreats perhaps. And some people don't like to sit and there's walking meditation. And some people like to learn how to pray. And whatever it is that helps you trust the nothingness. Like what's the rest of that Robert Johnson quote? Do you have the whole thing there? I do. I do. Um, I have a part of it anyway. Um, so he says, what happens in the gap? Nothing happens, which is enough to frighten any modern person. We live with our psychic energy in modern times as we do with our money, which is mortgaged into the next decade. I mean, there's all these phrases that we hear all the time, the power of now, living in the present moment. And we hear it so much, so ubiquitous that we don't even really know what it means anymore. Um, but the power of training yourself not to turn away from what's going on in the inside and to just stay with it. Oh, but I feel so tense. Okay, just stay with your tenseness. Just feel it. Just let it be there. It, it will start to melt. I'm afraid. Well, just feel the fear. Just let yourself feel it. Don't turn away. Don't numb. You, and there is a magic in doing that. You know, somebody would say the, the, the most, one of the most famous Buddhist stories is a, a student asked the Buddhist, well, what do you get from meditation? And his only answer was, come and see. So it's, there's 2,000-year tradition of sounding like an idiot when you try to describe meditation. Because how do you describe nothing or why that would help anybody? So meditation is one way. But I do want to say another way that, you know, you can speak with great, like, oh, I meditate. Or you can say, I work out at the gym. But if you say I'm in therapy, people find that sometimes a shameful thing to admit. But therapy at different times in my life has just been the way to stay in the gap or to even know what that means or just to get through a period of great loss and turmoil and change. I just like to dignify that practice or coaching, whatever it is, asking for help. Let's put it that easy, a term. For me, just feeling into what you, you said then, whether it's a, a therapist, a, a dear friend, uh, a mentor, it's finding someone who can hold space for you in the gap. That's been the game changer for me. 
because sometimes it's really hard being in the gap by yourself. And also it doesn't help to bring somebody in the gap that's going to maybe constantly narrate your story about the gap to you. But to find somebody who has the skills and the tools and the ability to hold space for you in the gap, like I'm here and I'm just holding this space. You can be here, I will hold the space. That was and still is a game changer and it's taken many forms in my life. But finding those people and having those people close to you in one way, shape or form makes a big difference. And there are friends and friends are critical, but there's a difference between a trained person who has skills and experience and doesn't let you get off with running your bullshit and uh, calls you out and shows you the way. It's, you know, in the ancient cultures, that's what the shamans did. That's what your trusted priests did. You know, we live in a world where we have, for better or worse, most of us don't have a, a, a church we go to or an elder in the family. You know, it's a, it's a different culture. And I do believe that really good trained therapists and cultures are the shamans and the priests of our time. Good ones, ones who really will take you on and guide you through. And I think it's a beautiful thing to know how to ask for that kind of help and to do it shamelessly and um, and and bravely. I'm so glad you said bravely there because I was just thinking of the word courage, like to to truly have someone who's willing and able to take you on. Um, I love that language. My husband and I went through a period probably a couple of years ago now when lockdown first happened and we were going through a rough patch. And we brought in, uh, I was looking for a therapist for us to spend some time with. I remember saying to a girlfriend of mine, I don't want somebody who's just going to let us retell our stories over and over and over again. I want somebody where I can take radical responsibility for myself in this. Now, I said those words and she said, well, I've got just the person for you. She works in therapeutic fields. She put me in touch with this incredible woman. We did one session. <laughs> the session finished. And I remember looking at my husband and going, I, I changed my mind. I, <laughs> I, I don't want to take radical. I, I want you to take radical. Responsibility. <laughs> I don't want, and at the end of the session, she, she said to me, she was like, I think, you know, you and I should do some more sessions. And I'm like, what about him? And she was like, he's not in pain here. You're in like, you're in pain. he's willing to come on the ride, but you're the one in pain. You're the one that needs to take responsibility for where you're at right now. And again, I I called my friend and I was like, that was the worst idea I ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do this. What I really wanted was for someone just to vindicate where I was at and explain it to my husband. That's where the word courage comes in. Yeah, to take radical responsibility for where you're at and sit with it, which brings us back beautifully to the gap. Um, before, before I let you go, there was one more quote that I wanted to talk about and it started off with, now I know that a frozen and frightened girl cannot be a good partner or a mature mother. A person who has never been wounded cannot heal. A leader is worth following only if she can follow her own heart. And I know for me, and I'm guessing that for anybody listening, there are various aspects and places in our lives where we are frozen and frightened right now, either for ourselves, our families, our communities, the world at large. 
what are some of the ways that you have turned to in order to unfreeze in those moments? We are living in uh, really difficult times. So, you know, we have our personal lives and then we have our collective lives. And collectively right now, there's so much despair. And that is a frozenness I've been feeling a lot for myself. I can get so frozen with fear and despair for the world. So I don't want to skip over the personal, but I think we've talked a lot about the personal. So I'm going to answer as a global citizen right now and not just, you know, a sometimes nice wife and a, you know, like all the problems we have as a, as a colleague and a friend, but every single day, another thing happens in the world that just is a dagger to the heart. Uh, a really, really in the 21st century, we're still going to be going through this. And whether it's what we've gone through in our country with the past president and God forbid the next one. <laughs> and pandemic we've all been going through which is still not gone and we're we're all living in a combination of joy to be a little more free denial and terror and the war in ukraine the gathering winds of uh eating and eroding democracy whether it's in russia or china or france or all the places our own countries it's Wherever we turn, the world is in a tremendous phoenix process of, of burning the old away. And it's always scary and difficult when things get burned. It could go either way. We could be reborn as humanity into who, we, who we've always been able to be as a, as a global community, peaceful and creative and climate change becoming our unifying principle of saving this precious planet, that could be happening. We could be burning right now because we are going to go there. So without burying my head in the sand and without doing my part, I unfreeze on a daily, sometimes hourly basis, when I feel the despair welling up in me and the fear, I unfreeze by having an intention to do everything I can in my little way to choose that this is a Phoenix process leading us toward in four years, eight years, 20 years, 100 years, I don't know, the perfection of the human community. And I hold that out and I don't let myself get eaten by fear and despair. And it's tell, going back to that quote from the Spanish philosopher, tell me to what you pay attention and I will tell you who you are. I do not want to be part of the darkness. So I invite in light as much as I can. And you know, when I do, I notice that people are starving for that. They're starving for each of us to offer a little hope, little hope food, you know, because everybody else, you call your friend, can you believe what happened? And then you're just back in the politics and the climate change and the war. 
and so I like to, you know, take a historical perspective to know humans have been through this before. We've risen from the ashes before. We've risen from some terrible ashes, and we will again. So that's what I do to unfreeze myself these days because I'm a very socially aware person. I'm I, and it's hard to be a socially aware person right now. There's that trust piece as well that you just mentioned, like trusting the Phoenix process because you we're in it, right? Like we've got two options when you're in it. You can either trust it and hopefully contribute something that is useful and helpful by just offering your trust up, offering your belief up, offering a version of the outcome that you want to see, or you can not trust it and you can offer a version of the outcome into the wider world that is what you don't want to see and, you know, add more energy to that. Well, thank you. Um, that was beautifully said, by the way. I love the way you just said that. I, I have to, I mean, your, your work, and I said it at the beginning, I'm going to say it again now, your work has enabled me more than once to trust the Phoenix processes in my own life and sit still long enough <laughs> with great difficulty sit still long enough uncaffeinate long enough <laughs> to, to to let things burn away and rise to whatever's next so well if i ever make my way over to australia i really want to have some coffee with you <laughs> i can take you to places that would serve you coffee that would blow your mind <laughs> thank you so much what a pleasure Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.